Thank you for joining us today on Fraud Talk. This is Mandy Moody, the Communications Manager here at the ACFE. Um, and I am so excited to be joined today by Steve Griffin. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Mandy. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so Steve actually reached out to me a few months ago about a book he had recently written called Front Row Seat, Greed and Corruption in a Youth Sports Company. And it was very intriguing. I ordered the book and it's a fabulous read. I think it's so interesting because it combines the kind of normality of being a parent and a professional with a very ex extraordinary story of, of when things can go wrong. Uh, so Steve, tell us a little bit about you. And we had just spoke before this, you are in calling us today from Rhode Island and we're here in Austin, but tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So, um, my background is I'm born and raised in Massachusetts, uh, have lived in Rhode Island, uh, for quite a few years now. Um, went to a school here in Providence called the Moses Brown School, where my wife is actually now a teacher, and all three of my children are alums. Um, I have a boy-boy girl, one who just graduated from college, and two that are in college. Uh, all three were pretty active in youth sports. My wife and I played sports uh, our whole life. Uh, I went to Providence College as an undergrad, went to the University of Rhode Island, for my master's of science in accountancy and um, started my career as a CPA uh, with a big four firm and um, left public accounting, got some operating experience, uh, and then was a partner in a private equity firm and then served as sort of an operating partner for a couple of large cap private equity firms uh, working closely with their portfolio companies. And then... Um, I guess six or, six or seven years ago, uh, left and started investing my own capital and playing a relatively active role in most cases at the board level, in some cases rolling my sleeves up and taking on an internal function um, with a portfolio company or two and happened to make a few investments in the uh, sports space. It was not an industry that I had ever been involved in before. And it was not, quite frankly, uh, a preconceived investment strategy or thesis. It was sort of an opportunistic one uh, that came my way to start it off um, as my children were playing in youth sports. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's probably a relatively succinct background on who I am. Wonderful. And before we completely dig in, you know, I was curious how you – made the jump from, you know, sports dad to going to the ball field to then saying, you know what, I want to invest. I know it was uh, a meeting with different people and personalities, but, you know, when did that jump officially happen? Yeah, no, it's actually a great question. And um, so um, I think I think the first thing I would say about that is um, because – uh, we're an active family, uh, and during sort of my children's development years or formidable years, we were like many parents, you know, going in different directions, bringing my daughter to a lacrosse game, bringing my son to a baseball tournament, dropping my oldest boy off for a golf tournament, 
uh, we were sort of scattered and um, I didn't look at the market quite frankly as an investment opportunity probably because it was it was part of our personal life right and and mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of folks who normally will say you know if you're if you're a fisherman if you're an avid fisherman you might not want to be looking at investing in a boat company because it's too close you're not objective you've got you've got certain biases built in so um i wasn't actively looking at the space and then i attended a couple of events with my middle son um baseball events and was introduced kind of at scale to what was really happening and again this is seven or so years ago, what was happening in youth sports. I started to see it firsthand in travel youth sports. Um, and so what, what became interesting to me in that first opportunity was that this was a very fragmented marketplace. It appeared to be a large market. Um, it was relatively unsophisticated, in my opinion, in terms of the the operators and the infrastructure around youth sports. I guess that's part and parcel to the fragmentation. It was an industry that seemed to be driven largely by um, cultural influences, you know, 24-7 ESPN in your households, kids eating breakfast, um, watching morning sports center, and then going to practices after school, um, the cultural or emotional drive of parents, mm-hmm. um, either for the right reasons or, in some cases, for the wrong reasons. Um, so I saw all of that as a really interesting kind of – as interesting market characteristics, number one. Number two, not – I don't want to sound like some pure capitalist who was just looking at this in a very sterile manner. The second thing I saw was I thought there was an ev- sort of an evolution of that market happening, which was the global brands, you know, Nike and Adidas and the like – have always been trying to reach that target audience, right? That's that's a very attractive demographic, not only the participant, but the family in general who has sort of raised their hand and self-selected as a travel sports family. They spend money on hotels and airfare and eating out at team dinners and buying gear and so on and so forth. And yet they've never really been able to connect directly with them. And so I was looking at it thinking, man, all these years they've been relying on a two-step retail um, distribution channel to Dick's and Sports Authority at the t- time and Foot Locker. Um, and now this generation who's participating is holding, you know, a digital Gutenberg press in their hand. Their ability to to post on Instagram that they're at an event, um, to for mom to post on Facebook a video of her son playing baseball and share that she's at a certain tournament and so on. And I thought, wow, we're at an inflection point here where these brands can actually start developing a direct relationship with these families. So from that, not to go too deep into it, from that I started to think there was there was sort of a youth sports ecosystem that was ripe for not only investment and potentially, you know, yield, but also one that could be improved dramatically, that more value could be provided directly to these families, um, whether it was sponsorship dollars coming into these programs that would keep pricing down, um, that would allow more families to participate, more kids to participate, um, providing more digital connectivity between kids who not only weren't on the same team, but maybe were from completely different regions, but shared common interests and so on. So you can imagine sort of in your mind this 
pretty complicated infographic of what we thought this, what I thought this opportunity could be. Uh, so it went from sitting in Cooperstown, New York, watching my son play and just sort of aghast at how many people were there and, and the volume of activity and purchasing that was happening to, hmm, there's a, there's a really interesting economic driver behind this. And if somebody came into this market and started to professionalize it and enhance um, the service and the customer experience, um, we probably could do a lot of good at the same time. Yeah. So what did it look like at the beginning? Yeah. So, yeah. So the have, have made, um, I guess, six, six or seven, I guess, investments in this space. So, so what happened is over that period of time, um, you get pitched on ideas, you meet people in, 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 um, the sports market and other markets. And I started to realize I'm going to narrow my focus down. Before that, I had been sort of industry, my, my professional experience was sort of industry agnostic, um, you know, in public accounting and on the private side, uh, I had worked across a variety of different industries. And, and now I was thinking, you know, there's, there's something interesting here. So I narrowed the focus to the sort of amateur sports market. Um, so the first couple of investments that I made, um, you could check the box that we were able to um, partner with large global brands in a way that those brands hadn't really done before in this fragmented marketplace. Um, and that involved things like, you know, on-site activation for the brand to show new products that were coming out to these athletes to make special offers to them at discounted prices or early release products. Um, we would take short form content, whether it was video or statistics or still images and um, allow parents to share those through their choice of, social media channels, um, all of that was building our brands and aligning us with larger brands who had a lot more influence. And I would argue was giving the families more value, right? They were seeing products before somebody else, or they were getting them at, at a less expensive price, um, or they were getting gratification from attending these events. Um, we even went so far in one company that was in the baseball space to be the, really the first uh, to introduce at the subcollegiate level really advanced technology around measuring um, things like exit velocities off the bat or spin rate for a curveball that allowed players to get information that would point them in the direction of, of improving and things they needed to focus on, all the way up to providing college coaches and um, professional scouts with real data and insights into the athletes and their projectability, let's say, if they were looking at them for, for college or even potentially for the major league draft. So, so it was quickly evolving, um, mm -hmm. both in terms of the way we were engaging with customers, the kind of information we were providing them, the way they were sharing information. Um, and I would say that in, in all of those cases, we were getting immediate feedback that was indicating that people were satisfied or really even exceeding their expectations. So that only, that only continued to feed, you know, my interest in the industry thinking that we can do this across more sports and more platforms and continue to try to elevate the experience for the, for the families. That's interesting. I would imagine it sounds like a lot of exclusivity 
um, which sounds very appealing. And then a lot of, you know, I imagine at the time, you know, FOMO, but fear of missing out on on some of these opportunities. You know, you see, I, I know my own children and other parents that I'm with, you know, they don't want to miss out on anything. Um, so I imagine this is all very captivating to parents, players, and those uh, companies. Yes, it is. And, and that's, and that's for me, that personally, that's sort of a, a double-edged sword, right? So um, we happened, I, I think we happened to gotten involved early on with businesses that offered, offered events or programming at what I would call the sort of elite or exclusive level, um, which makes sense because those would be, those would be the types of families or players who tend to spend more, right? Whether it's because they're more engaged or, or they, or some parents think there's an ROI, right? We're Mm -hmm. going to attend enough of these showcase events that Johnny may get a college scholarship. Um, That group of people also tend to be what that group of constituents, whether it's the customer or, or a college scout, a college coach or a professional scout, they also tend to be sort of early adopters of like the technology and the data that I referenced. Um, so we tended to gravitate initially to that end of um, the segment uh, or the consumer base. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is exclusivity. And, and that's one thing that I'll, I'll say, you know, both in terms of econo- economics and just societally in general, it, it, be, it starts to become exclusive. And that's a bad thing. Because one of the challenges in this market is this this whole pay to play um, is excluding people who don't have the socioeconomic status to pay uh, to play, which is wrong. And the second is, you know, it's it's widely acknowledged in the industry that there's a significant cliff or attrition at about the age of 12 or 13 across most sports, which speaks to everything from, you know, continued physical activity, overall wellness, engagement with their friends. Um, you know, even, you know, some people correlate it to a rise in, um, you know, the incidence of anxiety or depression or mm-hmm. mental health challenges for kids in their teens and college age. So one of the things that I, I have believed in and we wanted to continue to do was to make sure that we, we didn't just operate at the peak of that pyramid, but that we were taking, in some cases, the aspirational elements of that elite market and trying to drive it down both in terms of appeal and make the economics more attractive um, to provide more participation across that entire spectrum. Uh, and, 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 and in that case, everybody wins, right? I mean, there is, there is a viable, you know, unlike what some people say about this marketplace, there is a viable model here that has um, to the far right a family who believes that their child is going to go play professional sports and they have the wherewithal to spend money for private coaches and so on. We live in a free society. If they want to do that, great. And if there's somebody who can create a business model around that, that's fantastic. But the middle of that, you know, bell curve needs to be satisfied as well. And then all the way back down to the left side being sort of town and recreational participation those all need to be healthy and thriving because the minute you get away from that, you see the byproduct of it being a drop in participation and all those things we touched on a moment ago. And I imagine there's also a lot of inherent trust. 
that, uh, you know, much like a, a church or um, an HOA or you, you have the trust that everything's going to be run and done properly, right? Because it's it's a feel-good thing. It's, it's sports. It's people playing. So did you see that trust there or did you know that people you're investing it's it's going to be handled properly or did you go in because of your background like wondering okay I gotta check all the boxes here I still have to be you know trust but verify I guess where was that trust uh, it's a it's a really timely and insightful question <laughs> um, so I'll break it up into two. I'll, I'll try to answer that two ways. Um, from the consumer perspective, yes, I I believe that this that this industry, like like many others, um, for different reasons, but this marketplace should be held to a different standard because people are entrusting us with their children. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm not selling an air conditioner and, or widgets or what have you, but. This is about children. It, it, again, it's it's a free enterprise. We're capital. We're capitalists, but we should be we should be held to a higher regard. We should make sure that um, background checks are done, and um, the children's health and safety is ensured um, at at a baseline, sort of a hierarchy of needs. Those things need to be the foundation for sure. And then as you move up, um, if you're making a commitment to uh, a family that your program provides the best curriculum, the best coaching methods, and so on, then you better deliver on that promise um, because this is a very emotional, personal thing for a parent and a family and, to begin with. And, and number two, some of these people are stre- stretching financially to do this. Mm-hmm. So you have an obligation to deliver on that. Um, I, I'll i go on to the second part of trust in a second, but to close that first part out, I am, as a, as a CPA, we're trained to be professionally skeptical overall, um, but I will say that I, I default to trust, and I think we have a human bias to trust, and I will say that I think that the vast majority of the operators in the youth sports marketplace are in it for the right reasons. Um, they check the boxes. They make sure that they're doing everything to be com- not only compliant, but they care about the families and the kids. I, I have not left this experience jaded. I, I believe that that is, is the case. Um, it's not the case everywhere. Yeah. Now yeah. I'll flip to the second, second side of trust is more that professional piece for me. Um, so if you think about it from a pre-acquisition or pre-investment perspective and looking at a business like this, I do believe we, we all tend to default to trust. I think that's how we're wired. I know there's all sorts of research out there on yeah, that, even yeah. consumer-friendly stuff that you know Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in Talking to Strangers and things like that. I, I believe that's the case. I mean, I, one of the worst things someone can say to you is, I feel like you don't trust me, right? Like there's a, So you tend to not push too hard. Um, number one is that. Number two is we have biases as well. And so I knew this marketplace. I knew... We had done it before in other companies. We knew what levers were there. Um, also knew that these this is a fragmented market, so you've got typically small businesses that don't always have um, the best control environment or systems and processes in place. And unfortunately, I probably have let that bias 
um, instead of instead of looking at those things as negatives or properly scoring them on a risk continuum, I dismissed them as, oh, okay, we can get past those, right? We know this market, we know the industry, it's healthy, it's robust, and we can we can fix those things. We actually can add value. We know how to do that. Um, so I think I think I tended to overtrust a little bit or underemphasize some of the early red flags um, in a couple of these investments. I mean, that was perfectly leading into my next question. <laughs> so tell me, you know, you're investing in a company. Where where did you, I guess you can looking back, see the red flags, but when were you thinking, oh, this isn't right? Something isn't right. So, and even writing the book, it's interesting. At the time of putting the book together, um, I had 2020 hindsight. And so I had to be careful. I wanted to write the book in a way that, if 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 a fraud examiner or an internal auditor or a college student is reading it, I wanted them to be kind of walking with me along that journey and not make the red flag so obvious along the way. But I wanted them to be there so that they could look back and go, "Oh yeah, that should have been that should have been a moment in time where where questions were raised." Um, you know, in hindsight, pretty early on, um, I did a. Um, I did a little lecture kind of thing, virtual lecture with the internal audit, uh, the Institute of Internal Auditors a couple weeks ago, and I kind of graphed it for everybody, which is interesting. Um, I would say, you know, even some of the early first meetings with management, um, their communication style, it was a little bit um, inconsistent. Um, you know, one meeting you'd leave feeling like they were really excited to have somebody from the outside or new investors getting involved and rolling their sleeves up and adding value. And then there would be this unusual gap in time. And you'd think, God, that's weird. Why, why aren't they responding as quickly uh, to next steps that I would have thought they would uh, normally would. Um, there were a few initiatives that the company had um, in process that we thought just strategically didn't make any sense. Um, and instead of, again, looking at those as signs of either um, poor decision-making or poor, poor strategic thinking or something potentially nefarious, we just dismissed them as those are bad ideas. And you know what? Those will be addbacks to EBITDA when we, when we value the business. Uh, so, so even in the pre-acquisition phase, there were things that I would say concerned us. But then there were things that kind of outweighed those mm -hmm. Um company had a functioning board of directors and had a few outside board members who, while we didn't know them personally, we got to know them and felt like, oh, those guys are providing, they seem like the kind of guys who would provide good um, corporate governance. So we felt better about that. We knew there was an existing bank relationship um, and that they appeared to have a good relationship with the lender. So we felt there was a little bit of a, you know, third party validation there. The company had never been subject to a financial statement audit, but they had been subject to a review. So again, we felt like, you know, they're an outside CPA firm who's not issuing an opinion, but, you know, they're, in, they're under the hood. Uh, and we use third party, you know, we use some third party diligence providers on for financial diligence and legal diligence. So those types of things, you know, helped us get past those early red flags. Um, however, I would say, Within a month or two post-closing, 
it was really a couple of things that happened um, leading up to and at our first board meeting that early that were real red flags. And, um, you know, while this may not, these things may not sound that interesting to a, a, a general consumer audience, I think they're probably interesting to people who work in, you know, in, in our fields. Yeah. Um, one was um, we started to see gaps in system where we were, where representations were made that systems were, were seamlessly integrated. We quickly realized that wasn't the case, that they were disparate general ledger systems. Um, consolidating entities was an extremely manual exercise. Um, we had been under the impression that that was not the case. So now you're thinking, God, this, you know, that's why would you represent that when, yeah. that, when that isn't the case? Um, we, and there's a lot of them, but I'll hit the, that was one that concerned me immediately. The second was that we had offered, uh, we had provided a template as a week, new, newly reconstituted board. We had provided a template to the management team of, you know, this is sort of what we would expect to see on a monthly basis. Um, we offered to help populate that template um, and even suggested, hey, let's try to get this delivered to the all board members, you know, three to five days in advance of the first board meeting so we really have time to dig in and be fully informed and engaged at the physical board meeting. And um, while it sounds incredibly qualitative, um, the days leading up to the to the board meeting, we didn't receive anything. We ended up receiving the board package the night before the board meeting. It didn't even resemble our template. Um, and at that board meeting, we realized we weren't provided a full set of financial statements um, particularly the cash flow statement, which is, you know, for me is critical. Um, and so at that board meeting, our sense was that maybe this management team's a little bit overwhelmed mm. and, um, on the fly, we hoped that was the case on the fly. We suggested as a board, let's, let's sort of, um, clean up this organizational structure a little bit and take finance and accounting away from the the flat structure that, that it had at that moment and, and give it to a board member. And uh, in that case, it was me. I was really, I think I was the only sort of, you know, CPA or former CPA on the board. And it was, it was like a moment out of a, um, a case study um, where management may be up to no good. The CEO pushed back aggressively, but absolutely not finance and accounting has to report directly to him. Um, it was glaringly obvious that they didn't want anybody to have unfettered access. In my in my opinion, didn't want anybody to have unfettered access to the books and records of the company. Did this worry you, or did you? Yeah, I mean, Mandy, when I say did it worry me, I even mention it. Not to keep going back to the book, but I even I call it out in the book. There was this very uncomfortable moment in the board meeting where the most you know, sort of inherently senior and respected member of the board, you know, looked at the CEO and said, hey, we're going to do this. You know, you've got too much on your plate. You need to focus on maybe biz dev and ops and let finance and, and financial reporting slide over here. Because a big part of the investment thesis was that we were, you know, we were going to be growing this business both organically and through acquisitions. And if we couldn't have accurate real-time reporting, mm -hmm. um, you know, that was going to slow that that expansion strategy. Um, it, and when the CEO pushed back, I'll never forget 
my fellow board member was across from me and he just was staring at me, you know, making eye contact, like, are we thinking the same thing? It was that, it was that palpable in the room. And uh, after the board meeting, we actually, three of us as board members met immediately afterwards in a separate office and all shared the same feeling that that, that, that did not feel right. Something is wrong. Um, and that led pretty quickly. I mean, in a matter of days or a week, um, to my spending a lot of time at the company um, and taking over the sort of having the accounting function report to me. There was still an incumbent CFO and a VP of finance and a controller, but it was supposed to roll up through me and that I would then, you know, report directly to the board. Um, and um, within a matter of weeks, we, we realized that um, there were some things going on with the financial reporting that, appeared to include misrepresentations and accounting irregularities and so on. Do you think that the CEO knew in that meeting that you said it was so palpable? Do you think he or she, um, I don't want to say want to anonymize. Um, do you think they knew or said, Oh, they, they're suspicious. Or do you think it was an ego driven? Oh, I'm not gonna, I can, I can explain it away. No, I think I think they they knew they knew it was a um, a potential tipping point. I mean, it was very uncomfortable. Um, I think they over the over the ensuing couple of months. I think there were moments where they thought, "I'm going to get through this. I can explain it away." Um, but the more work we did, the more we uncovered. I think it. it started to realize that, um, you know, they had a problem. Um, and, and, and again, this is just my opinion, but my sense having watched it was, I don't believe anyone wakes up one morning and says, Oh, today is the day that I am going to, you know, misrepresent something or, or commit a crime or whatever. Um, I think this was the case. You used the word ego. I think there was some ego involved over time. I think we had, you had a very small business. You did not have strong internal controls. You had that, you had a board of directors, but they were before the reconstituted board that was a little bit passive in hindsight. I think they gave too much rope to the management team. Um, you had systems that allowed for manual manipulation during the consolidation on a monthly basis. Um, and I think that you had leadership that tended to create a culture that was a little bit about hype, that mm. we're going to grow from this, we're going to grow 10x. And they would, they would set these lofty goals, and I think it was very difficult for them to accept or acknowledge that they weren't hitting some of them. So they would, they would you know, live in gray area for a while. Um, but as you know, at some point that ends up getting a little bit out of hand. And I think there was a point in time where the promises to meeting budget or meeting forecast hadn't been met repeatedly. I think there was pressure from the board. Uh, and then I think it became a little bit of self-preservation to, you know, my job may be, uh, may be at risk here if I don't hit these numbers. And they continued to, to fudge some things. Um, and then it becomes material. And then I think it's very difficult for people to 
to step out of that because now you're if you do step away and allow someone unfettered access, the truth is going to come out. So they yeah. hang on as long as they can. Yeah. So what what did you find? Yeah, yeah. So first is how did we find it, right? So yeah. It's a, that this is also you know rather qualitative, but you know back to the whole concept of the default to trust. Um, I kept, you know, I kept thinking, okay, there has to be, you know, th- there has to be an answer to some of these things that we're seeing. Um, and you, you start to convince yourself, you know, maybe, the, maybe these are entrepreneurs who have never reported to, you know, an appropriately structured and active board. They're not used to sort of a private equity environment or the expectations of financial reporting, you know, Although they, a couple of them, you know, one was a CPA, another had an accounting undergrad degree. Maybe they really don't understand or fully respect gap accounting. You, know, you sort of try to explain away a lot of it, um, which is interesting when I look back at it, because all that did was provide more time mm-hmm. for people to potentially cover things up. Um, there's definitely, you know, something I call the liar's distinct advantage in, in a circumstance like this. So, so because we were reluctant to make people feel like they weren't trusted until we could get, you know, or, or that we we were defaulting to them being guilty of things. Um, coupled with the fact that we we didn't have access to a lot of the systems, we didn't fully understand where data resided. We were concerned about conducting a open, full blown forensic exam um, for fear of affecting culture, affecting morale, um, or showing a hand too early and allowing people to, you know, mm. destroy evidence. And so even the exercise of going through the forensic work was typically done um, at night with the assistance of a couple of the accounting staff who we had learned we could trust, who hadn't been with the company too long, so there wasn't deep loyalty. Um, so what did we find? We found, um, you know, end of period, literally like 1231-type general uh, journal entries, that would uh, that recorded revenue, just literally a big round figure of revenue with no supporting detail. Um, we found um, inappropriate capitalization of prepaid expenses again that appeared to you know flip cost of sales onto the balance sheet um, simply to make a number. We found undisclosed related party transactions, a significant number of them of senior management. Uh, who had other entities that were doing business with the company. Uh, and and I'm, I'm one where I'm like, even if it's not that material financially, it is material from, you know, in terms of disclosing it so that we at least know it's there. It yeah. speaks to, I think it speaks to one's um, integrity and respect for disclosure requirements. You know, if I knew that the CEO was doing business in multiple ways with this business, I may not have wanted to invest in it because I would have feared that at some point there could be conflicts of interest. So those failure to disclose those were concerning to us. Um, we found some other things that we deemed to be competitive activities that they, some of the businesses they were in were actually competing directly with some of our revenue streams. Um, and we found um um, we found inappropriate accounting for prior acquisitions, things like backdating acquisitions in order to take a full year of that acquisition's profitability when, in fact, the acquisition was made in the fourth quarter of that year, for example. Um, so in the aggregate, it's so material that our outside accounting firm determined 
that um, we would have to restate the prior two years' financial statements. Man. So you you found a lot. <laughs> you um, found a lot, yeah. And and it seems to, I guess, looking hindsight, it it matches up with a lot of the things you told me in the beginning with the gaps in communication. You know, it was like the gaps of <laughs> revealing everything or conveying everything. Um, inconsistency w- was really probably all around. So what did you do after discovering all of that? Where did you go from there? Yeah, so once some of the, um, there was a summary memorandum prepared um, on um, all of the items that we found, um, you know, an adjusted financial model to reflect um, the reversal of some of those accounting entries. Um, or inappropriate accounting practices to kind of get to the point that as a board, a full board, we could see um, the the impact on valuation, number one, because, you know, new money had just come into the business. Um, number two, to get a sense of the scope of these individual elements and uh, their, you know, the scale of their impact on the erosion of trust in the management team because again you're like it's yeah. all new information so we, we sort of we put all this together as a board which included some of some included board members that had been with the company before we got involved so we had that benefit as well um, and the board unanimously decided to terminate certain employees um, and uh before doing that, they wanted to do that, but before doing that, we decided, look, let's sit down and present these facts to these members of management um, and walk them through it. And so we did that, and it was sort of a, a fruitless exercise. Um, you know, you got more spin, I would say, um, in defensive behavior. And then ultimately, you know, within days, the board made the decision to terminate these folks. Um, and, uh, because I had the most experience in the industry, um, I was asked if I would step in and take on the CEO role. Um, so I did, um, at that point we had, you know, the news was out. Now you're dealing with explaining to the rest of the company and the team that, you know, we've had to make some changes, trying to do it respectfully so that you're not. Um, slamming people or impacting morale too much. Um, but, you know, you had a lot of, you know, you had another bell curve. You had a few people that were way out to the right that were incredibly loyal and believed in the previous managers. You had a group in the middle that I think was sort of on the fence. And then you had a few that were like, thank God, you know, this, this place isn't what we thought it was. Um, and I, that all felt manageable at first. And then, um, you know, we, now having un- truly unfettered access, we started to find more validation of the things that we thought we knew about, and we shifted into a strategy of you know, let's um, let's make sure this foundation isn't cracked to the point that we have to raise the house. Um, we got to that point. We realized, okay, we, we do have a business here, um, but we've got some work to do, and we went into a mode of looking internally at, you know, 
let's bring in some new people and really build up a new team. And and so that became a heavy focus for us as a management team for probably, you know, six months. Um, but something interesting, Mandy, was happening that I never would have anticipated during that period. We were, we felt like we we're making progress every day. Business was growing and, and so on. Um, but the group that had been, the, the folks that had been terminated, um, and, and we didn't pursue litigation. Our position was we don't want to have major distractions. Let's figure out really what we have here. And, you know, perhaps we'll have to come back. Not perhaps. We likely would have to come back and negotiate some sort of adjustment to the valuation of the business. Um, but we didn't want to get caught up in litigation, both from a financial perspective or a distraction perspective. So I kept thinking that this group who'd been caught would leave with their tails between their legs, but instead they became quite vindictive and destructive wow. on the outside. And, and you know, I, we, we discussed this a number of times at the board level, and many of the board members' views, which I understand because they were removed, they weren't living every day, many of their views were, you know, these, these are people that are, you know, upset and they're not good people and they're, they're going to be destructive. And I kept thinking that doesn't make sense because if somebody, you know, does this and you give them a bit of a free pass, you think they would just ride off in the sunset, right? Yeah. But they were, they were being destructive. And my sense, and I use this term, was they, they, they seemed to be subscribing to sort of a scorched earth strategy. And it felt like, to me, they were coming back to the scene of the crime and trying to burn the house down. And um, and so I'll fast forward. Um, lo and behold, in October of 2019, um, about 10 months after I took over as CEO, uh, our largest division was raided by the Department of Justice. And that company... Um, was in the soccer business, and they are um, acute leaders of that group are under investigation for a variety of alleged crimes around um, international visa fraud, identity theft, among other things. Um, and so I think, I think part of what was going on was they did not want us digging in and asking questions. They wanted to distract us to a degree and hope that we would not look back. At one point, I was even told by a member of management, stop looking in the rearview mirror. Um, so, yeah, it got worse before it got better. And did they have children in youth sports, the management team? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Many of, many of the members of the management team, the founders and folks who were terminated, yeah, many of them had children in youth sports. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow. So, you know, something we haven't brought up is you were dealing with all of this professionally, but personally, you had um, your health to think about. So how did those two play together? And and when, you know, that had to have just been horribly taxing. I, I can only imagine what your dinner conversations, you know, with your wife, like, I guess, tell tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so my so um so we were and I say we we had a very close team. Um and just to be clear, we, we, we moved the office to Boston. It, it is north of Boston, but we moved it right into Boston in the seaport area. 
Um, you know, there's people who said, oh, we moved into posh offices. We, we, we actually moved this company into a WeWork space. So we worked in a uh, open room. Uh, it was not posh. Uh, so literally, I sat uh, in an open space with probably 20 to 25 of, of my colleagues. I did not have my own office. Um, I sat next to my CFO, who sat next to our, one of our financial planning and analysts. Um, to my left was a wonderful young woman who served as sort of our overall office manager. She she helped everybody, whether it was travel or scheduling conference rooms and WeWork and so on. And to her left was our chief people officer. So we worked very closely as a group. And um, we were working on unreasonable and unsustainable hours, in my opinion. So, you know, I would typically leave Providence in the morning and take the train into Boston. And, you know, oftentimes leave the house, you know, 5 a.m., 5.30. And many nights I would not get home, you know, until not between 9 and 11 p.m. So there weren't even many dinner conversations. Yeah. Um, and and so, so a couple things happened. In June or so of 19, um, you know, I knew, I knew, I knew something was going on. I, I kind of dismissed it as stress, lack of sleep and, and so on, but I knew something was happening physically to me. And then ultimately, um, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Um, and so, yeah, a little bit of like, okay, what else can happen here? This is, you know, um, this is before the DOJ raid. So like this, you know, sorting through, what does this mean to me personally? What does this, what's the impact going to be on my wife and children? Um, it's an, it's a different disease for everybody. So the hope was that, you know, this could progress relatively slowly and, you know, it's not something you have to worry about, uh, too much now. And I, I kind of took that position and just kept my head down. Um, but started to realize that it was progress, progressing quicker than we all would have hoped. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I buried that for a while, mm. um, which was not healthy, but I just was like, I can't deal with that yet. I'll deal with it later. I have to plow ahead here. I've got 25 people who sit next to me every day and we're all pulling the same direction and I have responsibility. I have my own capital at risk and there are other people who have capital at risk and we're going to get through this. So I kind of stored that away um, almost, I would say almost for a year. Um, but, but it took a toll, no question about it in a matter of, uh, six months, you know, I went from, you know, I used to, I ran the Boston marathon several years ago with my wife. And then in a matter of six months, I was having a very difficult time walking, you know, the mile or half mile from the train to my office. I was using a cane, um, and, you know, uh, increasing dosage of cardiodopa, levodopa. So it was getting a little bit tough. Um, and then um, the DOJ matter took it to a whole nother level, um, whereas before we conducted sort of for the first phase of forensics was internal and focused, you know, on our board of directors and our investors. And and now we're under subpoena and I am helping the Department of Justice uh, conduct a criminal forensic uh, investigation. Uh, and that, you know, went from... October of 19, um, all the way through into the summer of this, of, of uh, 2020. Um, and things just, you know, got, got tougher and tougher. Um, and then I would say that when COVID hit, um, 
you know, we were in the live event business. So everybody locked down, youth sports stopped. And, uh, I think for the first time I was able to, um, not ride the train every day, um, which freed up, you know, three hours of my time. Uh, I started riding a Peloton. I'm not a shareholder of Peloton or anything, but I started riding the Peloton every day, started to do a little bit of meditation after my workouts. You know, the nice thing about the, about a cardio workout is you produce endorphins, um, which can make you feel like, you know, a Parkinson's patient doesn't produce a lot of dopamine. So you, I, I would feel like myself for a little while and I would layer in, um, meditation, maybe read some gratitude stuff while I was still high on the endorphins and I'd feel great. And, uh, I could feel myself sort of starting to lift up a little bit and I got into a habit of focusing, you know, on my own personal wellness and more importantly, accepting what the hand I had been dealt and looking around again and realizing I've got a wife and three children that I need to be thinking about. Um, and so, yeah, that, I know it's a long-winded answer, but that's sort of the process that I went through. And to be frank, I'm still going through that process. Yeah. So how are you today? I guess mentally, health-wise, and then, you know, where are you with the company? Yeah. So let's take the company first and get it out of the way. Company, um, uh, the company was not the company we thought it was, obviously, based on what we've talked about from the start. Um, we felt like we were making significant improvements after that first, those, the first set of challenges. I would argue we, even with the Department of Justice matter, we were able to uh, gain credibility with the Department of Justice in terms of how we supported them and um, uh, responded to their subpoenas and provided them with a lot of the results of our own internal investigation that has helped them so that the company was not a target of the investigation, but rather certain individuals are. So I felt like we were going to come out of that as well. And then COVID hit. Um, and at that point, I think the largest investors in the deal had what I call deal fatigue. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty and still is about where youth sports, you know, how it's going to come out of this. Um, and the company filed bankruptcy, um, last summer and is, um, still in the hands of the trustee in Boston and going through that process. It'll be a, it's a seven. It's not a reorg. Um, I left the company before the bankruptcy, um, in this, you know, around May of 2020. Um, and went to, took my family to the Cape, um, in Massachusetts along the national seashore and made a weird decision. You know, my company was heading towards a bankruptcy. Um, I just, you know, I'm dealing with Parkinson's. We're facing a global pandemic and I decided to take my family on vacation, you know, an hour and a half away, but I did it because I felt like we needed time together. I needed time to sort of clear my head. Um, and we, we spent a lot of time in the summer on the Cape. And I thought, you know, at a time of so much uncertainty, including political uncertainty at the time, um, maybe maybe we should spend time together. And so what happened was I went down there just thinking I'm going to take a deep breath and figure out what's next. And uh, I didn't plan to do it, but I sat one morning 
early before anyone got up, and I made an outline of what we had just gone through, and I thought it would be a very interesting case study. And um, after about 35 bullets of different topics from, you know, identifying an opportunity to management presentations, financial diligence, legal diligence, corporate governance, and so on, I thought, wow, there's a lot here. And I just started populating it and just writing. Um, and so that was June 5th, and I stopped writing August 5th. And, and so I, it was just a stream of consciousness. And then I was encouraged by a few folks, um, one in particular, an executive at Amazon, to consider publishing it. Um, so I did. And I, to be honest, I think I was in a bit of a fog. <laughs> I was yeah. still trying to sort everything out when I did. And um, But I'm glad I did because, um, you know, if you said to me um, in May of 2020, um, you think you'll ever lift your head up and say that you learned some positive things over the last couple of years from a business perspective? I would have said no. I don't want to. I don't even want to talk about what we're dealing with here. Um, I can tell you today, after putting pen to paper and really thinking about it and sharing some of the detailed experiences with people and the feedback I've gotten, I, I actually think I learned more in that two and a half to three years than I learned in the balance of my career. Um, and the second thing I was asked by somebody was, you know, what about Parkinson's? And I would have told you in May of last year that there's nothing good about what's happening to me. Uh, and I would tell you today that it, the Parkinson's may actually be the greatest gift other than my wife and children that I've ever been given. Um, it has forced me to rethink what's important in my life and to focus on family and gratitude every day. Um, it, it's actually broken down some barriers that I probably had be between myself and um, certain friends and extended family. Um, it's actually been a tremendous blessing, to be honest with you. And, it, and, it's, and it's forced me to think about what's next. What am I going to do? I don't want to ride the train every day. And yeah. physically, I don't think I could do it anyway. And so... Um, you know, I guess at the end, uh, for me, the, the experiences and the book itself, if, if I were to say, you know, what do I want somebody to take away from it, and I didn't plan to write it this way, is I would love it if people read – those people who read the book, if you're a finance person or a forensic person or an auditor, I think there's some really interesting lessons or – validation of what you may already know, but it, but it puts it in a context and, um, and in a case study format that I think is, feels like, you know, real life and is, and is usable. I think it's a cautionary tale for another audience of, Hey, look, you know, you stop bending the rules a little bit or cutting corners. Next thing you know, you're doing these things and this is what can happen. Um, I think it's a really interesting opportunity for young people to get exposure to the good and the bad. Well, how does a board function? What, what does proper governance look like? Uh, what happens from an accounting perspective when, when you don't adhere to GAAP? Um, and then even on a more technical side, I think the internal audit function is, is something that sounds painfully dry, but I think it really raises a, the, a flag around how important a functioning internal audit function to some degree uh, is really important across all companies, even if it's 
not a standalone, autonomous, independent person, but some function that is keeping an eye on systems and controls and, and transactions. And then the last part is just very personal is no matter how bad things get. And I mean, if you read this book, it, there are times where you're like, well, oh my God, what else is going to happen to these people? <laughs> um, you can come out the other side, right? Doesn't Whether it's business or personal, um, I, I hope the book provides a degree of hope to people that when things are really stacking up against you, professionally, personally, health-wise, if you maintain your value set and you have faith, whatever that means to you, um, that you're going to be okay and you're going to get through it. And, and, and if, if, if any of those could resonate with somebody, then I'm, I'm happy to have gone through this experience and be able to provide those insights. Wow. Well, thank you so much for for sharing today and for being so candid. Um, you know, we do these podcasts and we interview people, but we rarely cross over into personal um, when really I think, you know, a lot of our members do what they do because it is personal to them. Um, and it's personal to them to come out on top and to find truth where there might be a bunch of lies. And it, and it is, it, it does affect, you know, everything from health to, uh, to your work and what you do every day and how you spend your time. So I just really thank you for, for sharing this with us. Um, I know that the people listening will find a lot of value in this. And my only regret is that, that we couldn't do this in person. Um, but but I'm so glad we were able able to connect on the phone. Same here. I, I, and Mandy, I really appreciate the opportunity and, um, and I enjoyed the conversation. So thanks so much for doing this. Wow. What a story. Thank you to Steve. And thank you all for listening today. This has been probably one of my favorite podcasts to record. Uh, no offense to all the other wonderful podcasts I've done, but this was an incredible story. You can, as usual, find us on wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you can find us on acfe.com slash podcast for all of our archives as well. Uh, until next time, this is Mandy Moody signing off. <laughs>